Episode 132, How a Micro-Hospital Can Succeed in Rural America. Today, I speak with Darren Pierce, MBA, BSN, and Vice President of Ambulatory Services over at Navicent Health. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. As I was preparing for this interview, here's a comment I heard. If you had told me three years ago Peach would be one of the most successful hospitals in the system, I would have asked you what you're drinking. Bottoms up, I guess. Because the micro-hospital that this comment refers to actually has become one of the most successful in the Navicent Health Network. Today, I speak with Darren Pierce, MBA and BSN. Darren is the Vice President of Ambulatory Services over at Navicent Health, and we talk today about how he helped make this happen. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Darren. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me here. I've heard it said that rural health care is much more expensive than urban care to provide. Is that true, and why? It can be difficult from the standpoint of far as expensive because, one, you're trying to be all things to all all people. So if you're in a rural hospital and you're trying to provide all the care that you can for every possibility in that area, it can be cost prohibitive. It can be cost prohibitive for the hospital itself. It can be cost prohibitive to the citizens themselves. And plus, I believe that when you're trying to do something that you're not really good at or something that you're struggling to be successful at, sometimes quality can fail. You have to make those decisions. You know, do we really need this technology? Do we really need to perform these procedures? So that's where the cost part can come in. And so as a rural hospital, you have to make those decisions. And these are the kind of decisions we've been making is that we want to provide the care that's needed. So, you know, we can look at all the, the DRGs and see what kind of patients are coming in and what you know, what their illnesses is, and then say, well, these are ones that we want to make sure we can take care of because these are the top five diagnoses in that county. Despite that, Navicent made the decision three years ago to build a new hospital out in Peach mm-hmm. County. So why did you choose to do that despite these circumstances and the odds? It's challenging out there. There's a lot of people without access to healthcare, or it's too far away. It's 60, 70 miles to the next hospital. And there's also a growing county down here. And Peach County is a small, rural, relatively poor county. But the county next door, Houston County, is a up-and-coming, growing county. There's a huge uh, military base there. There's a lot of patients that need access to healthcare. So when we decided to build the new hospital, it was based on twofold. One, we wanted to get out of the small town that the hospital was in, and we wanted to get closer to the other county. So literally being on the county line so we can draw patients from the other county as well as the county that we're currently in. When we originally built it, we were looking at this as a competition for the hospital that's down the road. There's a 200-plus uh, bed hospital down the road that we would like, you know, say, well, there's some business going there. Maybe so we can drive some of that business here. And I would tell you, looking in hindsight, I believe that was a mistake on our part. It's really more important to make sure that you're working in partnership with whoever the surrounding hospitals are, whether they're competition or not. 
if you're out there trying to literally cut each other's on each other's throat, you know, you're not going to provide the best health care for the people, the local citizens. So what we've done is instead of being in competition, we're like, what can we help you with? Where are the areas that you need help? And one of the things for a rural hospital and a swing, uh, critical access hospital like Medical Center of Peach County is that we're very good at the swing bed part of the hospital stay. And these are patients that come in that are relatively low acuity but need some long-term care such as IV antibiotics and therapy. And this is a perfect hospital for them to come in and spend 14, 15, 16 days. And it works well financially for this hospital, but it also gets the patients out of the other, the competing hospital or your sister hospital, and where the cost of care per patient day is much higher than our cost per patient day is. So that's where we made that decision to go that direction. We had to make that decision kind of on the fly because initially, like I said, it was competition. But in the end, we weren't wound up working in partnership and it's really worked really well. This hospital is doing very well financially and uh, seems to be uh, well on its way to bigger and better things. What you did was you looked across the way and you said, all right, that hospital over there is really good at X, Y, and Z. So we're going to find some white space. We're going to do the things that that hospital is not super good at as opposed to going head to head with them. Well, so plus what happens is, you know, it's not that they can't be good at it. There's not enough value for them to put the resources in it that they that they might want to. And that's where we come in. We can kind of pick up that value. Was this a conscious strategic decision? In other words, you know, you kind of came out of the gates and you were trying to compete directly with a neighboring hospital. At some juncture, someone's looking at the monthly financials and realizing that this might not be the best strategy. And then there was a very conscious decision to pivot. Oh, absolutely. Uh, We realized quickly that now we spent all this money for a new hospital. And essentially what we did, we just took the old hospital and put it into a new building. You know, you've heard the expression, you know, you can only put so much lipstick on that pig. Well, (laughs) essentially, it's what we did. We made a very pretty pig. We realized that this wasn't going to really work. You were trying to compete against somebody that there's no way you're going to win against. We made that conscious decision that we were going to make some changes and we had to change more than just what we wanted to do. I mean, I can say all day, well, we want to take more swing beds. We want to do more outpatient. But you also have to change the culture of a small rural hospital. You know, over the years, things have really been tough for rural hospitals And it's not in the last two years, but over the last 10 to 15 years. And so they're really used to doing more with less. And I think people just get used to it where there's like, well, we've always done it this way. This is all we can afford to do. We can't really afford to change. That kind of attitude is pervasive. So we've had to go in and change not only what we wanted to do as far as growing the hospital, but also changing that culture. Yeah. So you've said in the past that which I thought was very sage advice, that there's three things that you need to drive success. You need to change culture, as you just mentioned, satisfaction and outcomes. So what I'd like to do mm-hmm. is let's let's talk about this. Uh, we'll take each one in turn, but but let's talk about this culture business for a sec, because it's something that it's a directive that rolls off the tongue, mm-hmm. but is not super easy, as any of us who have attempted to change a culture find out in the first, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 minutes. <laughs> How do you... <laughs> Go about this, you know, so I say, let's change a culture. What do you what do you do, Darren? Well, you know, there's uh, been volumes and volumes of books and videos and people talking at seminars telling you, you know, how to make uh, a happy place. You know, Disney's made a killing on it. But what I really believe is that you need to keep it simple. If your staff is not happy, 
nothing's going to happen. I mean, if they're miserable, they don't believe in what you're trying to sell them. They do not have faith in the direction we're going. They've had no input in the direction we're going. It doesn't matter how great your plans are. You have the best plans on the planet. Nothing's going to change. So number one, you have to have happy people. And the way to get happy people, you have to engage them. So if you get those happy people, then if you're happy, what are you going to do? You're going to walk out to the customer. You're going to go out to the patient. You're going to say, I'm having a great day, Mr. Jones. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I want them to walk into that room and I want them to care about that patient. And they can only do that when their own needs are satisfied. So if they're happy, then they're going to go into the room and they're going to make that patient happy. And I will tell you that from my experience, doing those first two things first in that order, happy people, happy customers, it generally leads to a happy bottom line. And you've said things like turnover has dropped considerably. What are some of the more quantitative results that come from happy people? When I came into this facility a little over almost two years ago now, we had, I would say, 50 to 60 percent of our staff were contract employees, empty positions that were not filled. Census was low. ER volume was low. Very little OR going on, very little outpatient work. We started focusing on this happy people, happy customers, happy bottom line, and we saw turnover drop immediately from about 50 to 60 percent. We got it as low as 8 percent. It's currently running about 12 percent. So that's turnover you can live with. That's not so so much turnover that, you know, you feel like you have a lot of empty uh, spots to fill. You can fill those with the right people, too. You know, you just don't want to bring anybody in. You want to make sure you're getting somebody that's sees your mission, sees what your goals are, and is a believer in what you're trying to accomplish. So we saw that happen. When the staff is out there, they're staying. There's there's some long tenure, you know, more than a couple of years. They're happy with what they're doing, and they're making those happy customers. And guess what those customers do? They like to go out into the community and say, you know what? I went to Peach the other day. I went to the emergency room. I walked in the door. I went straight back to my bed. Everybody was so nice. They were very professional. That's just a great place to go. And they'll go out and tell four or five or six people because they had such a great experience or they'll go on Facebook and they'll say, had a great experience at Peach. All you got to do is turn one other person and then they'll say, oh, well, let me go try it out. And then they try it. And I will tell you in the past, you know, people would not come to Peach. They didn't really believe that the quality of care was there. They believed that it was just not going to be a good experience for them. And we're starting to see that turn away. We've seen in the last two years, especially in the last 12 months, we've seen our ER volume increase by about 30%. We've seen our med surge volume stay almost completely full. Our outpatient volume has tripled. Our OR volume has really come into its own. We've doubled the procedures. We're going probably looking at quadrupling the procedures for this year alone. And here's the interesting thing. They've been trying to recruit physicians here forever, trying to get them to come in and do OR procedures and anything else that we needed to do. And they've always been very resistant. Well, it's peach. I don't know how it's going to work. They might come in and do a little bit of work. Now they're actually beating down the door. Hey, I want to get in here. I want to be involved in this. So we've really seen some positive change as far as that goes. You said the secret to changing culture, I'm going to tee it up that way, is, in, mm-hmm. is engaging with the staff. What's like one big thing that you have found really successful relative to how do you go about engaging the staff? To engage the staff, from my point of view, you know, pretty much I'm a simple guy. And I think, you know, I'm Joe Normal, right? I'm, I'm in the 50 percentile. There's nothing exceptional here. So what would I like? And I want people to come up and tell me, Darren, we're going to make this change. And this is the reason we're going to make this change. And then my past, and I started out as a registered nurse on, in a critical care unit. 
they would make these changes and you never understood why. It didn't make any sense. Well, that's not how we really do things. It's confusing. I think you have to go in there and you have to say to the staff, you have to say, look, we want to make a change. This is the direction we want to go. And you got to get their input. And then once you get their input, then you make the change. You let them know, okay, this is why we made the change, as y'all all know, and this is where we're going. But you got to set the expectations with them too. You have to say, okay, we're doing this and we're going to do it your way. And the expectation is that this is going to happen. And you have to have their buy-in. And it can be the smallest things. One of the things that we do is, you know, when I'm walking down the hallway, I tell everybody, you know, when you're walking down the hall and you walk past somebody, if you're not smiling, they don't believe you're friendly. And those first impressions are huge. So one of the expectations we set, everybody will agree to this. They all sit in the room. Oh, should you smile? Absolutely. You should smile. And we allow each other to call each other out on that. If I'm walking down the hallway, I got my mind in the clouds. I'm thinking about something. One employee said, smile, smile, Mr. Pierce, smile, Darren. And I said, oh, absolutely. And, you know, we smile and we can chit chat a little bit. And it really just causes an engaging culture. When you have that engaging culture and people are like, we like each other, we want everybody to be successful, and then they start seeing results, it's amazing how quickly it turns around. I'm thinking about you two years ago when you came in on the scene and you've got this hospital that is not doing so well. The trend is not looking super good. So we've got that as, let's just say, one prong on my little setup here. And then on the other side, engaging people and kind of group decision making, it's slower. So you're under this tremendous amount of pressure, I can imagine, to turn that trend. And yet you're engaging in a strategy which tends to take longer to enact Did you have enough leeway? Are you very persuasive, you know, with your leadership? How did it happen that you were able to, indulge is the wrong word, but but that you were able to go down this path knowing that it's a longer road? Well, two things, you know, you give out $20 bills every time you walk in. No, just kidding. But no, but seriously, I agree with you. In the beginning, is a little bit more challenging. It's not really group. So the group process is is pretty clearly that, you know, you want to get everybody's input, but you can't allow that to slow you completely down. You have to choose the middle ground, whereas we're, look, we're trying to make a decision. We want everybody's input, but we can't wait forever for everybody to come to consensus. You know, we have to say, this is kind of what we're looking for. This is the direction we're going. So yeah, you're under pressure to get it done. But let me tell you, you want to go through that for the first little while, maybe first three months, maybe first four months. And believe me, if you come into a situation like we were at Peach and we're at this other hospital that as well now, you're so far in the bottom. But, well, they want you to push. They want you to be successful, but there's no expectation from anybody. So they give you that little bit of leeway you're talking about. And you take that first three or four or six months and you work everybody and show them some success. Man, success breeds like rabbits. I mean, it is incredible. Pretty soon, everybody's coming up to you. Everybody's got an idea. Everybody's talking to each other. They come to you in groups. Say, hey, we want to do this. But the best thing about it is they have faith in you now. They trust you. They know that you're not trying to take them down the wrong path. You're taking them down the path they want to go. And they're in consensus with you when you walk in the room, even though they don't even know what you're going to do yet. (laughs) So the secret to success is just make sure circumstances are so bad that people have... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no expectations. Well, um, you know, I, I don't want to say that's absolutely the truth, but uh, there is something to that. But uh, but again, I will tell you that uh, 
a lot of success does come from, you know, just showing some success. I cannot tell you how many leaders I see walk into a room and they say, oh, my gosh, we got to fix this, 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 this. They have this whole list of things that they have to get fixed. And it's like it's impossible. There's not enough time in the day. There's not enough people and resources. And if you're familiar with Greenbelt strategies or you're familiar with the airplane model where, you know, you have the first guy makes one fold, the second guy makes the second fold, the third guy makes six folds and the last guy sends the airplane out. Well, guess what happens to the airplane after the third guy? I mean, for the first uh, before the third guy, they just start piling up. We can't move anything through. Well, that's exactly what happens. People get so bogged down with so many projects that they can't get anything done. And we feel like we have no success. Everybody's frustrated. Everybody's ready to quit. And the process actually takes 50 times longer. For me, we walk in, we say, look, we want to fix these three things. Yes, we have other problems that we have to address. But our focus and the focus of the health system and the focus of the people that are working here and all the leadership is that we want to get these three things done. And once you have some success, it's amazing how much other things, how fast they move through. We talked about culture and, you know, changing a, a culture in the organization, which impacts satisfaction. Were there other mm-hmm. things that you chose to do which accelerated the customer satisfaction trend that you saw? So one of the things we looked at was that you got to look at your community, you got to look at your county, you got to look at the people in your county. What is the best way that they're going to respond to you? So we had this survey that went out. And this survey was about 50, almost 50 questions, 38 to 50 questions. Some of that area is like six pages long. And so if you get this survey in the mail and they want you to fill it out and then they want you to mail it back, even with a self-addressed envelope, how many do you think get returned? The return rate is not going to be very high. And we were getting a return rate of like 6%, 7%, something like that. How valid is that statistic? Even the company we were using are like, well, this is not very valid. So we had to make some changes as far as that went. We had to go out and say, well, we want to reach out to a greater number of people. So we paid more money to actually make phone calls to people. They made those phone calls. We got a much uh, higher return on people giving us input. And then we tried to find the three or four things that people are most concerned about. If we're unhappy with the food or if they're unhappy with the pain control or whatever it is they're unhappy with, That becomes our next focus of excellence, and that's how we get out there. And that in itself, when you start making those changes, you start limiting the stuff that really upset people. If you're hitting their high points, you know, they got a nice – the room is warm. The food is hot. It's the food they ordered. The doctor is nice and caring. He comes in. He sits down and talks to them. That's how you turn it around. You start seeing patients start saying, well, this is just a great place. It was fast. You still get some complaints. You're always going to get some complaints, but you use every complaint as an opportunity to say, how can we fix the process so that the patient feels valued? And, you know, you have a choice as a customer now. It's not like the old days where you walk in, the doctor's always right, the nurse is always right. People have the Internet and they believe they know the secret, you know, what's going on with them. And they want you to listen to what they have to say. If we're not listening, we're not going anywhere. What you did was you you picked the thing that most people seem to have issue with and then said, Mm -hmm. all right, you know, this quarter or this month or whatever the time period was, this is what we're going to focus all of our energy on addressing. That's right. And everybody gets this. I don't think there's a hospital system in the country that doesn't do something similar to this by sending out these questionnaires, drilling down on the four things that are most important. But the secret is follow up. You cannot just say, 
all right, we have this plan and we're going to put this in place and we're going to follow up and then we're going to wait six months. So we have to sit down. We have to say, you know, this is what we're going to follow up on. And everybody has to be engaged. You cannot just bring three people in the room and say, this is what we're going to do. You have to drive it down to leadership and you got to hold people accountable to say, what are you doing that's going to make a change with what we know is a dissatisfier? You have the ability to collect the data to measure what you're managing. Absolutely. So let's talk about outcomes. Okay which is the third of the three things that we were talking about earlier that drive success in in a rural hospital. I mean, obviously, there are very well-documented and, and pretty apparent issues as it relates to the patient population that tends to come to a rural hospital. Do you want to talk about some of those determinants of health and what your secret sauce is there, Darren? <laughs> uh, yeah, I- coming to a store near you soon. Um, <laughs> again, when you're in a rural hospital situation, you know, it's usually a small county. There's usually not a lot of industry there. Or if there is, it can be totally driven by how much education is in the county and how important education is to that county. So in small rural counties, you see a lot of where education is not always the focus or it's not going as well as they wanted to, which is a huge factor. And for people like one, filling out satisfaction surveys, understanding what their disease means to them. It seems pretty straightforward to us, but for the patient that's coming in, I mean, you're using words they may or may not know, or they may be embarrassed to ask any follow-up questions with, or there's no follow-up education anywhere, or if it is, it's difficult for them to get there because they don't have a ride. So as a part of the healthcare community, you know, it's our responsibility. It can't all be about, well, what we can do to make money here, what we can do to do this. We also have to have that mission. And as Dr. Saunders, who's the CEO over Navison, she always says, you know, no margin, no mission. But you work to that margin, but then you say there is a mission part of it. And we definitely believe that we have to go out there. We have to spend time with them. Uh, we have to show them that we care because I believe that if people believe you care, then they're loyal to you. They want to come back to you. They trust you. And I think we've lost a lot of that in the community at large is the trust that the healthcare we're going to provide is not only good, but that we care about their outcomes. For sure. And just back to the the point that you made about the impact of low education. I read somewhere recently that one of the best ways to improve diabetes outcomes is to increase high school graduation rates. So the fact that you're serving a patient population that has a lower literacy rate that has significant impact on the care that you're able to deliver. Are there specific Mm -hmm. things that you are doing within the community? I mean, I know that you mentioned a few, but but are there programs or, or something that you're running or doing outside the walls of the hospital or within the walls of the hospital that you have found to significantly or meaningfully impact the outcomes that you're able to deliver? You know, we do the same kind of things that lots of people are doing now that we have community health fairs, you know, where we take this opportunity to take people's blood sugars and, you know, then sit down and try to do some education with them. But again, what happens is if you don't provide it in a place where everybody can get to it, it makes it very challenging for people to come. And not only that, those health fairs can sometimes be very busy and hard for people to hear what's going on. And again, everybody's trying to get into the same area. So we've looked at different approaches. One, we have things at the hospital for people can come up and they can actually ask 
you know, just walk in and say, hey, I got a question. They can walk down to the nursing station. They'll sit down and they'll do some education with them. We have follow-up phone calls. One of the things we've been doing with the local community kids is that we've been sending out books talking about things like what can cause hypertension, what can cause diabetes, and, you know, things that will help prevent that. And then reaching out to the community, having, we have fun runs and stuff like that, movies here at the hospital where people can come in and watch a movie for family night. We'll, we'll watch some Disney movie out on the front lawn uh, with popcorn and some other health, um, healthier snacks. And before we start it, you know, we like to give a little 10-minute blurb about, hey, diabetes is going on, blah, blah, blah. These are signs and symptoms of this or signs and symptoms of stroke or signs and symptoms of your blood pressure may be up and uh, the foods that go with that. Those are the things we're just reaching out. It's really very simple, but it, once again, it's just investment in your community. And when somebody asks you in the community, like the county extension office, can you help us? Well, you definitely want to get involved with that part of it because that community face, that's what people are looking for from their hospital. Again, we go back to that, do we care? And if we care, then we need to, we need to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Was this driven by value-based contracts? Are you risk-sharing or... Does this also impact uh, fee-for-service uh, arrangements, or is this just something that you feel like you should be doing? Well, so as a health system, we're starting to do a lot of that. Navicent Health's doing a lot of that risk-sharing, you know, finding opportunities because, you know, we get penalized when we have readmissions and uh, stuff like that, and we don't perform that the quality measures we should. So as a critical access hospital, we don't fall under a lot of those uh, restrictions. but it's still something that we need to get ahead of. If we don't start getting ahead of it now, when it does come down to us, we're not going to be ready for it. So we have to do that community needs assessment, which we're required to do every year or every few years. And then based off that, we actually try to put programs in place that meet those community health needs assessments, but not just because we know they need it and just because we have to look at it, because we know that in the future, how we control diabetes, hypertension, stuff like that is going to have a huge impact on the health of this community. If we don't fix it now, the cost is going to be so prohibitive that nobody can afford it. I know that Geisinger in Pennsylvania just recently, in the last couple of weeks, announced that they are doing a healthy community program in Scranton, mm -hmm. which is based on the Way to Wellville, which was an Esther Dyson initiative. Um, they picked mm -hmm. the way to Wellville picked five. I actually interviewed Rick Brush and dis, uh, actually just January, the, the first week mm -hmm. of January on, on their initiative to try to measure the health outcomes and the results that can be derived by going directly into the community. It sounds like regardless of whether it's a formalized, like you give it a name um, or not, mm -hmm. that that's something that you are also working on the, you know, the healthy community aspect of population health. It's essential for uh, the continued growth of the hospital. I know that sounds, you know, we're trying to keep them out of the hospital, but it's going to help with the growth. But the growth that we want is the growth in the areas that people truly need and trying to do stop the stuff that can be pre prevented on the front end. Yeah, we, we agree with that. We no, I don't have a formal name, but you make me want to come up with one. So I'll, I'll think I'll, I'll think about that over the week and see if I come up with something, call you back. And, but I, I'm just going to say that I appreciate the fact that everybody comes up with the, you know, the names and stuff. But it really comes down to the hard work. You got to get into the weeds uh, sometimes. And it's it's really challenging to get people to understand what your focus is and what you're trying to help them with. But it's not going to happen overnight. None of this happened overnight. So it's not going to 
it's like weight loss. You know, it seems like you put on a hundred pounds in a week, but you know, it takes five years to get it off. So I think it's the same analogy works for healthcare. It seems like we got into this position overnight, but really it's been years and years in the making. Now it's going to take years and years to get rid of it. And, and I've also heard it said, which is a quote I think about often, sometimes the fastest way home is the longer way around. Yep. You're right, because you miss all the traffic and the roadblocks, you know, because they're out there. <laughs> and I would tell you, you better be pivoting quick. You know, things will change in a heartbeat. And so you better be ready to be nimble and quick. It can be difficult. The larger you are, the harder it is. I agree that in the smaller systems and smaller hospitals, it's a little easier to pivot. But you still have to do it. It's not like that gives you an excuse. It's not like they're going to say, well, because you're big and you didn't pivot, that's okay. It's not going to be okay. Everybody has to move. And so that's where we're heading. It has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast today, Darren. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.